Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 5. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we were given a snapshot of the early Christian community. We were told that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That sounds fantastic. That sounds pretty close to ideal, and that makes the story that we meet next in Luke's narrative very important. The story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us that the early church was not all romance and glory. Yes, it was filled with the Spirit, but it was also very human, as all true churches have been down across the ages. Luke does not intend to portray the early church as some sort of golden era. It was not. There has never been a golden era in the history of Christianity. All our heroes, apart from Jesus, are flawed and fallen. And all our ages have been marked by progress and regression. The church will not be perfect until that day when she sees the Lord and is finally and forever changed. Until that day, we will have stories like this one. Stories of failure, scandal, and embarrassment. Luke doesn't analyze that. He doesn't philosophize here. He just tells us the truth. And that too is important. This story reminds us that Luke is a reliable historian. He could have left this out. It does not help the cause. It does not commend the church. But it's true. And it happened. And it tells us some things about God, about us, and about how God rules over his church by word and spirit. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it is often argued here that Ananias and Sapphira are motivated by a desire to appear as pious and generous as Barnabas, who was mentioned in the last chapter. In Acts 4, 36 to 37, we were told that Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Acts 4, 36 to 37. Now, this sort of extraordinary generosity was no doubt well remarked upon in the early church. And Ananias and Sapphira were perhaps jealous of all the attention that Barnabas had received. And as a result, they thought to imitate his generosity and thereby share in his acclaim. 
but they went about it in a deceitful manner. They sold the property for more than they claimed, and they kept a portion of the proceeds for themselves. Now, Peter makes it very clear that they were free to do whatever they wanted with the money. They could have given 10% or 50%, 80%, 100%, or 0%. It was their money. They could do with it whatever they wanted. But they said that they had given 100% when actually they had not. And that was the problem. They lied. And in doing so, they invited the judgment and the anger of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, to be clear, it doesn't say here that Peter cursed Ananias, and neither does it say that God killed Ananias. It just says that he fell down dead when he heard Peter's opinion of his behavior. So maybe he had a heart attack. The text doesn't say. It just says he was found out, he was called out, and then he died and was carried out. That's the sequence in the story. Now, we should also just notice in passing that Peter assumes here the deity of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse three three, that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says that he's lied not to man, but to God. So, obviously, Holy Spirit equals God, according to Peter. File that away for future conversations about the Trinity. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, oh, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, this is the part of the story where people tend to get upset. We don't know exactly how Ananias died, but it looks pretty clear here that Sapphira died under some sort of curse and or action of God. I'm sure that there are many reasons why God took the action that he did here, but at least one of those reasons is likely to remind us that the God of the New Testament church is not a different God than the God of the Old Testament church. This is the first time that Luke uses the word church in the book of Acts, and it's kind of an odd time to do that, but I think a helpful time. Far too often we hear people say things like, well, that was in the Old Testament, but God isn't like that anymore. Well, here we have a story that looks very much like something you might find in the Old Testament. In fact, many scholars point out how similar this story is to the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. F.F. Bruce, for example, says the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua in both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. 
Closed quote. Sounds like Old Testament anew. God will not bless or prosper deceit. The more the Lord is blessing, the more obviously he is associated with a movement or with the expansion of the covenant community, the more he will safeguard the honor of his name through rigorous and immediate discipline. That seems to be the point of these stories, Old Testament and New. And that point appears to have been fairly obvious to those who participated in and observed immediately these actual events. Look again at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear came upon the whole church because they were freshly reminded that their God was a holy God. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. These signs and wonders served to authenticate the apostles as the successors of the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason for signs and wonders. I am just saying that is the reason that is obviously in focus here. The apostles were preaching a new message. This was not repackaged, reheated Judaism. This was different. Now, of course, it came out of Judaism, but it was new wine. And to demonstrate that this new message, this new wine was from God, it was accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. It proved to people that God was at work and God was speaking through the new covenant church. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, just quickly, once again, notice that in the Acts of the Apostles, it is the Sadducees who are most opposed to the Christian church. In the Gospels, it was the Pharisees very often in the front seat and the Sadducees very often in the back seat. But here now they appear to have switched places. And in fact, we will soon discover that many Pharisees have converted and joined the church. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the, and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. 
yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice again Peter's approach to civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. For Peter, as before in Acts 4, this meant continuing to preach the gospel even when commanded not to by civil authorities. As you will soon see, it also meant gladly bearing any punishment the government saw fit to hand down. This isn't Peter protesting government corruption. He's got bigger fish to fry. This is Peter doing what Jesus said to do, no matter the price he must pay. That is what civil disobedience looks like in the Bible. Notice also in verse 32, this amazing statement about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, according to Peter, is a witness to Christ and is given to those who obey him. Wow! The proper study of that verse could solve two or three major problems right now within Christendom. I love what John Stott says here. He says, God's people are under obligation to obey him. And if they do so, even though they may suffer when they have to disobey human authorities, they will be richly rewarded by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Closed quote. Amen. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Again, this is what civil disobedience looks like in the Bible. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then they left the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They were opposed. They were threatened. They were beaten. And they rejoiced. And more than that, they kept right on preaching the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. 
If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. <music>